RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. It's unlike any other kind of insurance line. Most policies will take around 20 hours of work to underwrite. And yeah, there is a a real technical component to it. So that takes a lot of experience, a lot of technical skill, and I guess a, a commitment to the cause of creating a worthwhile insurance product. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have Angus Marshall, and we are going to discuss warranty and indemnity insurance. Angus is a graduate of the Australian National University with a master's degree from the University of Sydney. Uh, He started out his career in the international tax and mergers and acquisitions team at PwC, then moved to the law firm Norton Rose Fulbright, where he was also in the mergers and acquisitions team. Then in 2013, Angus moved to London, where he made the switch to insurance, joining first AIG, and then in 2019, CFC, where he's currently head of transaction liability, which is what we're going to discuss today. So Gus, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Um, as is clear from the introduction, you've been involved in, in the world of mergers and acquisitions for, well, forever, really. Um, so so when did you cross the divide uh, from practitioner to insurer? And 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 why? Why did you cross the divide? So um, as you can tell from my kind introduction, Peter, and, and perhaps even my accent, although it's 10 years old now, um, being in the UK for that long, I'm Australian, and I started off advising M&A underwriters in Asia Pacific. Uh, so it was a, a gentle introduction to the world of M&A insurance in, in many ways. And from there, I was on succumbent at AIG and ended up being offered a job in London, uh, which I gladly took up. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that was so compelling for me was the, the job of, of M&A underwriting really isn't that different, though I could say a fair bit more interesting and more fun, but from a technical perspective, not that different from acting as a lawyer in just a general M&A transaction. In effect, you're almost as if you're advising the seller, but instead of advising the seller on what risks to not take, we're in the business of taking the risks. Brilliant. And um, well, I, I've been wanting to do an episode on uh, warranty and indemnity insurance for a while, but there's a reason why um, I'm wanting to do it today, because on 8th of November, 1972, so 50 years ago, the current stock exchange was opened in London. And uh, one person who was present on that day was my father, because he'd been the chief engineer for the construction project. And uh, so to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the stock exchange, and indirectly to commemorate my father, uh, we're going to do an episode this today on the something that's linked to the buying and selling of, of shares, warranty and indemnity insurance. So, so Gus, could you uh, set the scene for us? Because I'm I'm, I'm merely a litigator. I've, I've never done any M&A transactions in my life. So the, when we're talking about mergers and acquisitions or, or M&A, that to my mind means the purchase of a company in, in simple terms. But kind of... What happens? How does it happen? So, so, so let, let's say that I own a company which uh, sells, I don't know, kind of wildflower seeds 
um, or something like that, and, and you happen to be someone who wants to buy a wild flower seed company, how do we go about it? What, what, what happens and in what stages? Well, it's both pretty straightforward and, and can also be pretty complicated at the same time. But in essence, you have a motivated seller and a willing buyer, and you're buying um, something that as a company contains all sorts of risks. So as a buyer, you want to pay a fair price and understand the risks that you're taking. And as a seller, you want to get your money out of that company without having to pay any future types of liabilities that you may have agreed to pay under the terms of an agreement to sell the company. But where insurance comes in is it would be expected that the seller makes certain promises about the company that they're selling because the buyer will require it. And if those promises, also known as warranties, turn out to be wrong, the buyer has a right to recover a certain amount of liability money from the seller due to those promises being incorrect. Okay. And, and, and those promises are the, the warranties and indemnities, and they are in the share purchase agreement? Is that the document? That is correct. I mean, it, it goes by various different names, but um, yeah, share pur purchase agreement, SPA, or if you're in Australia, a SPA, which I always... Um, get get um, pilloried for by um, by my UK friends. It can also be an asset purchase agreement, although I'm at risk of complicating things by introducing that term. But effectively, it's just an agreement to buy shares um, of the company that operates the business that you want to buy. So, so that's obviously why it's called warranty and indemnity insurance, or that's how it's usually known, W&I insurance. But um, I think it's something different in the US, isn't it? And and I believe that CFC, um, you call it transaction insurance. Is that right? So are all of those things basically the same thing or are there subtle differences? Subtle differences, although I would say to someone new to this class of insurance, they're, they're not really that relevant. But just to rattle through them, M&A insurance is the same as transaction liability insurance, which is the same as transactional liability insurance. And then the product that exists within that class of insurance, W&I insurance, is called representations and warranties insurance in, in the United States, or R&W. So acronyms and terminologies, but you know, broadly, we're dealing with two main concepts. It's the class of insurance and the product in which the main product of that class being W&I insurance. Brilliant. And, and, and how long has it been around? So... I'd say that it's been around in various guises for over 20 years, but it certainly entered the mainstream, at least the m and uh, mainstream in the last 10 years. And typically it was a, a product that was offered by Lloyds of London um, over 20 years ago. Uh, and now it's fair to say that the US market is by far the largest market in which this product is, is written. And um, sorry, the, 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 just one more introductory thought, because we are going to get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of the policy in a moment. But before we discuss what the insurance actually achieves and what it does, could we consider for a moment what would happen if, so let, let's say this, this hypothetical transaction of my wildflower seed company, if, if there's a problem, so let's say if I have misstated the amount of yellow rattle seed that, 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 that my company sells, in the absence of insurance, if there were no insurance and I have breached a warranty that I have made to you, what would happen? So you as a buyer would file a claim against the seller. And depending on what the terms of the agreement say, you would have a, 
a legal right to some form of damages. And if it's a particularly buyer-friendly form of agreement and indemnification, which I'm at risk of getting too technical here, but essentially you're going to get sued. And to mitigate the risk that the seller who's given those promises or warranties doesn't have the cash to pay the buyer what they're owed as a result of that breach of of a warranty, oftentimes an escrow is entered into. An escrow is a French word, which really is just money set aside for the satisfaction of a future issue, potential future issue. Now, sellers don't like escrows because you're having to lock your money up for a certain amount of time that you don't get to use. And it's at risk of some future event that you can't really control. And that's really the kind of segue into why insurance exists. It's You can avoid giving an escrow um, and you can avoid having this risk hanging over your head as a seller that you've made an innocent misstatement, which has caused a, a warranty breach. And insurance is really protecting the buyer against the risk of non-payment. Okay. So, I mean, it makes you wonder why there wasn't a WNI insurance product beforehand. I guess the thing that kind of brings this all together and explains why WNI insurance has taken off in such a rapid way is private equity. Now, the seller doesn't want to give an escrow. The buyer would like an escrow, but is now accepting of the fact that it's unreasonable to ask for one, especially in light of the advent of insurance. But the thing that I think really explains why W9 insurance is so popular is private equity sellers. So historically, they can't or didn't and wouldn't give expansive warranties because they needed to return the proceeds from their investments to their LPs, their investors. So a buyer could not really get a fulsome suite of warranty protections when buying a company. Now, because of that, they weren't willing to pay as much. In comes w Insurance and a private equity firm seller can give a fulsome set of warranties in selling a company to a buyer who likes that without the related risk in doing so because it's insured. So you know, that, that fact alone is, I think, the reason for PE funds as buyers and sellers still accounting for well over 70% of the, the participants in the market, either on the sell side or the buy side as insured as it would be. So this is one of those situations where the, the existence of insurance actually has the potential to change the underlying agreement. Exactly. Um, so w- one of the unique characteristics, I think, of, of w Insurance is that it's not just about risk transfer. If you think about every other commercial insurance policy, it's really about wanting to transfer a risk that you can't accept having or, or won't accept having. Here, of course, there is risk transfer. It's insurance at the end of the day. But there is a significant benefit in terms of facilitating deals getting done. And although it's impossible to say how many, we think that there are a material number of transactions that are insured in the market every year that wouldn't have been done without insurance. Um, Let's move on to the nuts and bolts. So first, which party is it that tends to buy the insurance? So it's almost always the buy side in the main market main market being deals of $20 million or $20 million EV up to, I mean, I think the biggest deal we've ever insured as a market was $24 billion. So buyers are typically insured, but the seller can be insured. And certainly the seller on SME transactions are now commonly insured. And there are benefits to doing both. But I think the reason why you have 
the buyer insured in the main market is the seller doesn't need to be liable for the warranties that they've given. It can be a so-called pound cap, i.e. they're only liable for one pound of liability. And the buyer's sole recourse for a breach of warranty is against the insurer. So that allows a, a the cleanest of clean exits, if you like. Okay. So, so in the shared purchase agreement, the seller provides a warranty, but the, the shared purchase agreement states that there's a cap on liability for a breach of that warranty. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And, and that's because of the existence of insurance. So there'll always be a cap but the cap is significantly reduced because of insurance. Okay. And reduced down to literally one pound, which of course is, is meaningless. Because normally insurance would cover, would compensate for a loss, which would be the contractual loss. So if the contractual loss is one pound, then the limit, you know, all that the insurance would pay is, is one pound. But this is, this, is, this is an insurance policy which is completely separate to the liability, by the sounds of it. Yeah, that's correct. So... To sort of illustrate this point, if you're insuring the seller under, and this would never happen, but for illustrative purposes, if you're insuring the seller where their cap on liability is a pound, the insurer could only ever pay one pound. Mm. Now, when insuring the buyer on a one pound cap seller indemnity deal, the policy disregards the cap for the purposes of insurance. So, so the, 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 there's a breach, the buyer suffers the loss because of the breach of 100,000, say, and they can recover that back from the insurance, even though they only have a legal right of recourse against the seller for one pound. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Presumably that the policy uh, includes exclusions, otherwise it would just be a, a guarantee. So what, what sort of limits are there on cover in, in a W&I policy? So I think the the key a couple of key exclusions which speak to the the concept of W nine insurance, if you like, and they mirror in many ways issues that you can and can't claim under the terms of a standard share purchase agreement. So the first one is as a buyer, you can't recover for any issue that you are aware of. So if you know of a warranty breach, you can't then turn to the insurer to, to seek recovery. The second key exclusion when you're insuring the seller, as rare as that might be, is we can't insure the seller for their own fraud. And that would be pretty obvious to those um, working in and around insurance. The other group of, of exclusions, technical in nature in some ways, but worth mentioning, transfer pricing, which is a, a tax risk around how you've priced certain goods and services in an intercompany group secondary tax liabilities, liabilities that fall on you, despite them primarily being liable by a third party. There are also some deal-specific exclusions which come out of underwriting, and they're too sort of voluminous and deal-specific to really group. Okay, and how do, the, the fact that, that it's the buyer of the business who buys the insurance policy, and they obviously don't know kind of, there's not much for them to disclose. So I'm slightly intrigued to know how you as an insurer protect yourself to ensure that you don't get stitched up by the parties. I'm not saying fraud or anything like that, but that the parties can tailor their due diligence in ways which effectively, you know, that they don't necessarily ask the questions that they probably ought to ask, but they just cover it on the, the insurance policy. So so, and my understanding is that you know notifications on these policies run around twenty percent, which seems to me to be very high. So, I guess the broad question is: At what point do you, as insurer, become involved in the M and A negotiations 
And how do you protect your position um, in those negotiations? Yeah, so it's it's far more art than it is science. But the market is is filled with ex MA solicitors, and I think the general sort of thrust of what we try and do is think about what are the risks in a business, how are those risks translated into the warranties being given by the seller, and then looking at the diligence conducted by the buyer to see whether there's any gap between the warranties and the risks on the one hand and the diligence on the other hand. And you, you kind of got to take a step back because the risks that we're covering, it's the kind of unknown unknowns, right? We want to get to a position where what's covered under the policy is really only caused by seller fraud or it's caused by an issue that couldn't have been identified in a reasonable diligence exercise. Now, at the end of the day, this is the company that they've got to own and operate and hopefully make a return on. So we don't want to be dictating what they should do. But equally, we've got pretty good experience. I'd say it's it's fair to say we would see more M&A transactions as a market than really any other kind of participant in M&A generally. So we've got a pretty good handle on what is and is not market. So to what extent do you physically get involved? I mean, by the sounds of it, if you are the personal underwriter on, on an M&A transaction, do you go through the due diligence? Do, to, to what extent do you rely upon representations made by the insured? And to what extent do you rely upon your own investigations? I think that the representations made by the insured are perfunctory, really. You know, the underwriting is, is down to us. And how we would practically underwrite a risk is look at the, the virtual data room, assess how well populated that data room is because of course the data room is the single point of reference for the buyer's knowledge they can really only know anything about the companies they're buying by what's being put into the data room and then looking at the buyer's due diligence reports and seeing what they've looked at in terms of the risks of the business the data room how they've reported that whether there are any warranties on highly exposed issues of a company that no one's ever really looked at. And then again, probably getting too technical, but it is certainly relevant as part of the process. And that is looking at, at the disclosure exercise undertaken by the seller. So uh, the amount of input that you would put as underwriter is extraordinary. I mean, that sounds to me like a lot of input. I can see why you need to be MA lawyers, really, who, who kind of are, are, fill, are filling this niche because you need to know what you're doing, basically. You, I couldn't do it. I couldn't just pop in and have a look at a few documents because I frankly wouldn't have the foggiest idea what I was looking at. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, to, to your first point, Peter, I mean, I, I would agree with you. It's unlike any other kind of insurance line. Most policies will take around 20 hours of work to underwrite. Compare that to other lines of insurance, which some can be a, a matter of mere seconds um, and others a couple of hours at most. And yeah, there is a, a real technical component to it because it's all about this balance. We're trying to balance creating a product that's worthwhile for insureds and not taking on so much risk that it's unprofitable for the market, but unprofitable for the market would really be by proxy a very, very one-sided M&A transaction. So that takes a lot of experience, a lot of technical skill, and I guess a, a commitment to the cause of creating a worthwhile insurance product. No, I, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So next question, a slightly more technical question maybe. We had Giles Hambley on as a guest uh, a year, 18 months ago, something like that. And he was talking about tax liability insurance. And 
I was just wondering how W&I insurance sits alongside tax liability insurance, because Giles told us that tax liability insurance is kind of kicks in when there is a known tax liability, but there's a, a slim possibility that the advisors will have got it wrong. How does W&I insurance sit alongside that? Um, so, I mean, they, they are very complementary products. W&I insurance is covering the unknown unknowns. Tax insurance is covering the known unknowns. You know, you've identified an issue, but you don't know how severe it will be. You don't know if you're right or you're wrong, but you just know that it's an issue. Mm-hmm. And typically, the, the known unknowns are not covered by W&I insurance. And therefore, coverage a coverage option is to, um, is to procure tax insurance for that known unknown risk. And you know, in the context of, of known unknowns, the way you would deal with such an issue absent insurance is you would get a specific indemnity for the issue. So for the, the M&A uh, lawyers listening, you know, I, I'd always say that where you are being requested as a seller to give a specific indemnity or where you as a buyer think you want one, there's a potential application of tax insurance and it's sort of cousin in the world of M&A insurance and that's contingent liability insurance does the same thing as tax, but for non-tax issues. Brilliant. And uh, I, I'm beginning to sense the answer to this and, and why, but um, my understanding, my, my research is that W&I insurance has most commonly been used in, in large um, M&A transactions. First of all, is that correct for, as, in terms of a, a description of the historical position? And and why is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that, that is absolutely correct. And I think one of the main reasons for that is the preponderance of MGAs that make up the market and just how the economics would generally work for an MGA. The kind of economics of these policies mean that you need a kind of minimum level of a premium in order to, to get out of bed, just like any other market, I suppose. And that minimum level really existed in the main market, deals with enterprise values of 20 mil and more, generally corresponding to an, to an economic underwriting process, which I get, I think we, we can all understand that, but it did leave a very significant part of the M&A market um, completely ignored, and that's the SME market. And when you take into account that, you know, I think under the M&A Institute's latest stats, out of 54,000 deals, it's something like 85% of those deals are SME, which is a massive part of the market that, that's going uninsured without a product. Well, you, you say without a product, but I, I think the CFC has just launched the product or is about to launch a product. So, so fast to me, businesses. So tell us about that. Yeah. So we identified that part of the market being ignored. So during the, the start of COVID, we put our heads together and, and figured out how would you create an insurance product for the SME segment to offer W9 insurance? And, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, and the, the product, it's now coming up to its first birthday, really. It's, it's been a great reception, frankly. Certainly in the US, we've done a, a truckload of business there and the UK as well, which is really interesting because in the US, an escrow is almost universal in the SME end of the market, which makes the buying of insurance such an obvious alternative. In the UK, escrows are, are not as common, but still we're seeing significant uptake for our SME product known as Transaction Liability Private Enterprise. And but who buys that? It's, it's on this occasion. It's not the buyer of the business. It's the seller of the business that, that buys the insurance. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So the seller, we're 
in effect indemnifying the seller for any loss that they have to pay to the buyer for a breach of the, of the reps and warranties that they've given. And I think that that can create quite a nice dynamic from the buyer's perspective because you're concerned as a buyer that, you know, do you know everything that you could know? Has the seller undertaken a thorough disclosure process? So you want the seller to be on the hook for the warranties that they're giving, but you also don't want to take the risk that if there's an issue, the seller can't pay. And of course, there will be things that the seller just didn't know anything about that might result in a warranty breach. And, and that's a innocent misrep, as, as we call it. There's always the risk of that. So TLPE is sitting behind the seller covering, in effect, the buyer for those types of risks. And, and one of the features that we brought about in the policy is to name the buyer as a loss payee. So if there's an issue, we're indemnifying the seller, but we're really paying the buyer directly for their loss. Yeah. But you obviously can't spend 20 hours per policy when you're dealing with SME um, stuff. So is, how, is, is it based far more on representations from the seller in that situation? Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's a main reason why underwriting so expedited in TLPE. I think the, the quickest policy we put in place, um, I think it's been, I think we did it in about 90 minutes. Um, which is probably slow for other SME products, let's face it. But for transaction liability, where start to finish on the main market can go as long as six weeks, 90 minutes is is certainly in relative terms rapid. And uh, what about companies which are distressed are in financial crisis where directors might have left or whatever, companies that are not in the position where they can actually give any warranties or indemnities at all how does insurance fit into that sort of situation yeah so i would say that when you when you have um distressed companies there's varying underwriter appetite to insure those uh but where you have a company that is significantly distressed and, and really insolvent there's still a market of buyers that would want to buy them and in many scenarios there's no one that is willing or able to give warranties um from the sell side so there's obviously an application for WNI Insurance to step in and deem a set of warranties that the seller would have would have given, but couldn't because it might have been in administration, let's say. And the market and generally refers to those, that that scenario as a synthetic WNI Insurance. Um, and it's fair to say this has been an idea that's been heard of a lot and really been around for a long time, but. It hasn't been as readily available as one might think. I, I certainly think there's there's a role for it to play, but it's certainly not part of the mainstream, I would say. And uh, we've already started to talk about, we're coming to the end of our discussion, Gus, so thank you kind of so much for that. But we've already started to talk about where WI insurance might be headed because you know it's an enormous market, isn't it? I hadn't really realised, but I was looking up at the, the website of the Institute for Mergers, Acquisitions and Alliances, and uh, 790,000 M&A transactions worldwide over the last sort of 19 or 20 years. So, and you know, $57 trillion. Uh, it's, a, it's an enormous market, obviously, but presumably you see W&I insurance as, as a huge growth area. Um, but, but are there sort of particular developments that you're anticipating? What kind of gets my creative interests going is, if you think about W&I insurance, it's really, in many ways, just an idea. And the idea is that we're insuring promises in a commercial transaction. Now, obviously, 
most of that is around the buying selling of companies. But there are huge markets um, that exist that just aren't serviced or really gone after at all. Um, the aviation market, I mean, the, the buying and selling of aircraft every year, you, you have extensive warranties and representations given in that commercial context. In lending agreements, there are warranties given by the borrower to the to the lender. Uh, again, you know, if you take M&A just on the pure debt side, you could quadruple the size of the equity component of that market because that's generally how levered these deals can be. So I would say that over the next 10 years, you're going to see probably a, a renaissance of, of W&I insurance in its application to a whole variety of different commercial contracts and commercial um, scenarios. I'd, I'd like to think that the market, it's kind of the end of the beginning and we're going to see, I think, a, a huge number of, of quite innovative adaptations of w insurance to, to other commercial settings. Uh, so finally, Gus, uh, what, what, what bit of advice would you give to uh, an individual entering the insurance world now, kind of from your, your experience? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a, saying you work in insurance, it's, it's a bit of a, a sort of social contraceptive. People switch off and they're not interested but one's got to give a good account of the industry and, and the reality is i think really fascinating when you think that insurance as an industry we're covering against kidnap and ransom floods in india the buying and selling of companies the insolvency of construction projects directors and officers property car i mean it, the world doesn't exist without insurance so if you want to get into a very entrepreneurial dynamic fascinating industry then insurance is is really the 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 market that not many people think of um, in those terms but in reality it absolutely is so i would say in short go for it you've got nothing to lose it's full of of real characters and and some some very smart innovative people that have been a pleasure to work with frankly thank you gus that was absolutely wonderful thank you so much for your time rpc radio Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.